Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast. Welcome to the channel, and thanks very much for joining us. I just had a great time talking with David J. Meltzer about his new book, The Great Paleolithic War, How Science Forged an Understanding of America's Ice Age Past. This came out with the University of Chicago Press in 2015, and it's an amazing book. The book takes us in the first nine chapters step by step through this really extraordinarily rich story, um, what David calls a thick description of the emergence of a notion of an American Paleolithic, right? And a series of controversies and debates and stories that surround um, the idea of and the question of human antiquity in America. This was a dispute, um, as you'll hear, that transformed, as David argues, North American archaeology as a practice and as a discipline, and he traces it from about 1862 to 1941. So what you'll find in these first nine chapters are just these fascinating um, sketches and case studies, this uh, gradual development of the story of this controversy, the people who were involved in it, um, why it mattered. And it's done in really intricate detail, but detail that's never boring. It's really, really gripping. In the 10th chapter, what happens is he steps back from that narrative, kind of steps out and synthesizes some of the major themes and questions and issues that come out of this really rich narrative that he's just given us. So it's a totally fascinating story if you are remotely interested in um, archaeology and its histories, ideas of human origins, um, the the history of uh, the kind of constellation of fields that include geology and archaeology and ethnography and paleontology, anthropology in the late 19th and early 20th century. It's just a fabulous story. So I'll leave you to it. um, And I'll just say thank you as ever for listening, for joining joining us for supporting the channel in this way. And I hope you enjoy the interview. As you'll hear um, in a moment or two, I definitely did. I'm here today to talk with David J. Meltzer about his new book, The Great Paleolithic War, How Science Forged an Understanding of America's Ice Age Past. Welcome to the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast, David, and thanks so much both for writing such a rich study of this topic and also for making time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks very much. I'm happy to chat. So, David, let's start with a question that has become traditional for the channel, and that is, how did you come to the field? What brought you to the history of science and why this particular area of the history of science um, especially? Well, let me start with a confession. I'm not a historian of science, and I I hope nobody turns it off right now. because this will be the the shortest interview you'll ever do. Um, I'm an archaeologist. That's my day job. And I have to tell you a story about how I got into archaeology because through a long circuitous path, it ends up at the history of science. And here's the story. I was a 15-year-old kid working on an archaeological site in Virginia. And it's a Paleo-Indian site, 
which means that it was occupied toward the end of the Ice Age, probably 10, 11, 12,000 years ago. And it was an absolutely spectacular site. And what made it a spectacular site was that it had all manner of uh, chipping debris because it was located near a stone quarry. And groups would come into the area. They'd collect all this stone from these rock outcrops, and they'd refurbish their toolkit. So it was basically a, a, an Ice Age Home Depot. And it was a really nifty site because we could literally see where an individual sat down and made a projectile point, and as they were sitting there cross-legged, the debris that they were producing in the course of making this stone artifact would sort of rain down on both sides of their legs, and then they would stand up, and you'd see essentially the shadow of where their legs are, and we could see that 12,000 years later. We had entire living floors where you could see outlines of specific activities that people had done. And so in terms of the stone tool technology, it was an absolutely spectacular sight. But we thought it was inadequate. And the reason we thought it was inadequate was that we hadn't found any mammoth bones. And everybody knew in those days, and I won't tell you how long ago it was that I was 15, but everybody knew in those days that the people, these Paleo-Indians, were big game hunters. And so even though we had this absolutely spectacular record of stone tool technology, we weren't finding the remains of what they were eating, and we expected, you know, there had to be mammoths there because those were the animals that we thought these people ate. And I vividly recall um, that we were we were digging, we were digging deep, we were getting into these old late Ice Age bogs looking for the bones of these mammoths. And I remember in one, one afternoon, and just to kind of set the, the scene, it was a dark and stormy afternoon, quite literally, because Hurricane Agnes – and some people might remember Hurricane Agnes, so they'll know when I was 15. Hurricane Agnes was bearing down on the site. We were deep in this excavation pit, and we came onto what appeared to be um, a vertebrae of a mammoth. And I remember how incredibly excited everybody got. We got the thing out of the ground. The hurricane hit. We got back to the lab. We cleaned it up. And we discovered it wasn't a mammoth vertebrae at all. It was a piece of quartzite doing a remarkably good imitation of a mammoth vertebrae. It was just a rock. And I didn't understand it at the time. I mean, I was a kid, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't understand just how much our expectations guided the way in which we did archaeology. We knew these people were mammoth hunters, so we expected, we demanded to find the bones of the mammoths that they were hunting. Right. So it wasn't satisfying to us that we weren't finding them. I subsequently tried to understand as I got older, uh, I tried to understand where did these expectations come from? And what I realized was that those expectations were rooted deep in the history of the field. And they went straight back to a place called Folsom which was a site in New Mexico that in 1927, a decades-long, incredibly bitter controversy over how long people had been in the Americas was finally resolved. And it was finally resolved at Folsom for a very simple reason. Back in the 1920s, back in the late 1800s, people had no way of knowing how old an archaeological site was. They didn't have radiocarbon dating. They didn't have any of the, the methods that we have today. And so in order to determine the age of a site, you had to determine it relative to something that you knew the age of. Well, at Folsom in 1927, artifacts 
projectile points were found in direct association with a now extinct species of bison, buffalo, giant buffalo, in fact. And it was that discovery that finally resolved this long, bitter controversy that's the subject of the book. And what happened after that discovery was that archaeologists at the time realized, oh, if we're going to go looking for ancient remains, the first thing we have to do is find ancient animals, right? We have to go out and find bison. We have to go out and find mammoth and see if there's any artifacts associated with them. Well, that became the search strategy. And so as a result, they constantly found artifacts associated with bones of large animals. They weren't finding the artifacts by themselves. And so that gave the impression that led to the inference that, in fact, these folks were big game hunters. So it was by virtue of how this controversy was solved decades earlier that led to the expectations that we had at this site, this Thunderbird Paleo-Indian site that I was working on literally decades later. So in other words, in order to have solved the chronological controversy, it led to this particular way of viewing the past, this particular set of expectations, which decades later were still driving the way in which we did archaeology. And so I started to look into that whole controversy, what Folsom was all about, and basically I got hooked on the history of science. And I don't know, you know, from your other authors, how they sort of got into the history of science. But once I started rooting around in the late 19th and early 20th century, I kind of liked it there. Um, I spent a fair amount of time uh, early on just reading the literature. And then I discovered archives. And I, I you know, these are things that historians of science are trained in, right? Um, but I'm an archaeologist. <laughs> uh, and so what I realized was that doing archival work was a lot like doing archaeology. That's right. That's right. And I, I've got to tell you, a lot of us who do sort of self-identify as historians of science absolutely did start out in the field. And of, like one of the biggest um, or one of the most um, widespread claims that I find anytime I go to a history of science conference, people standing up and introducing their papers with, I'm not really a historian of science, so, <laughs> which I think is great. And I have some news for you, David. You're now a historian of science. So whether or not, whether or not you want to embrace that, um, this, is, this is now just a fact. So let's get into it, right? You just started talking a little bit about your experience with uh, your kind of your archive and your sources. This is something that I'd like um, to get to right at the beginning as we dive into the book. So early in the first chapter of the book, the book calls itself a biography of an intellectual controversy, the interdisciplinary effort to establish a Pleistocene human antiquity in North America. And the story proceeds in the spirit of what you call thick description as history, right? History is thick description. So let's actually get right into the source base that enabled this. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of the most important kinds of sources that enabled this kind of thick description that you're giving us in these super, super rich chapters? This was a, so the period of time that I'm looking at is basically the 1870s into the 1920s. And it's a, it's, it's a great time to be a historian of science, largely because um, by the time the period started, people were using typewriters. So we didn't have to deal with onion skin, handwritten notes on it. Things were actually legible. Uh, and, and by the time the, the controversy ends, um, people are starting to use telephones, which, as Stephen Jay Gould has suggested, was the sort of greatest single enemy of historical scholarship. You know, he was so, a thesis advisor in college. 
Oh, for goodness sakes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shout out to Steve. um go on on. i'm sorry yeah so um and and people who were involved in this controversy knew it was important and as the best example of that oliver hay who was a vertebrate paleontologist long time at the smithsonian institution smithsonian archivist had wondered why it was that in all of his letters and correspondence that was saved it was only in individuals with the initials C, F, or S. They couldn't figure out. Did he not have any friends whose last names began with D uh, or with G or with M? And when I got into his archive, I realized what he had done. He had saved all of his correspondence with Harold Cook, Jesse Figgins, and E.H. Sellards. And the reason he was doing it was because those were the key individuals that uh, Oliver Hay was dealing with in terms of the controversy. So basically, he threw away everything else related to his professional life except everything that was related to this specific controversy. And that was true of all of these individuals. Not that they threw out their other stuff, but that this was a major moment in their intellectual and professional lives. And they wanted, um, they wanted the rest of us a hundred years later to know that and to know what they were thinking. And so over the course of this research, uh, I ultimately found about 3,500 letters um, back and forth. So uh, I could see this controversy literally in some instances in real time. I mean, a letter would go from Boston to Washington or New York to Boston in a day, and these folks would write back immediately. Uh, so one often, you know, if you're doing the history of science, of course, you have to read the published literature, but the published literature has a time lag to it. Um, obviously, it's it's concealing as much as it's revealing. Um, but the the letters, the rich, rich archive uh, behind all of this really lets you understand what these folks were thinking about when they were thinking about it and how they were responding. Great. Thank you so much. Um, And what it lets us understand in terms of the story that actually plays out in these chapters is really, really fascinating. So let's dig right into it. The second chapter lays a foundation for the study with a brief history of what the book calls the establishment of human antiquity in Europe, its catalyzing impact in North America, and initial efforts to come up with comparable evidence in America that sort of um, did the functional work of the kind of evidence that was being gathered in Europe. So in 1859, just to kind of set the stage for listeners, stone artifacts were discovered in England and France that moved the earliest traces of humanity back into the Pleistocene. And we're not going to talk substantively really about this chapter, but the work that the chapter does, just to mark this for listeners who hopefully will go out and get a copy of the book themselves and and read it, um, the chapter introduces us to the first secretary of the Smithsonian, Joseph Henry, who was encouraging a a search for similar kinds of evidence of human antiquity in America. And the chapter lays out some of the most interesting and important early attempts to do that. Now, this brings us into 1872 to 1881, Chapter 3. So chapters three through five narrate what the book calls the slow rise and then the precipitous fall of the American Paleolithic. And the third chapter opens with a figure we have to talk about. I'm going to ask you to kind of introduce him a little bit. This is Charles Abbott. 
Now, he was a naturalist and collector from New Jersey. Um, and so this Jersey girl was very happy to see that um, power to New Jersey here. So Charles Abbott is from New Jersey, and he takes the first steps toward establishing an American Paleolithic. And he does this in part by identifying stone implements, um, which the book calls the Trenton Paleoliths. So, David, can you introduce us to Charles Abbott? Who is he? What do we need to know about him and about his Paleoliths to understand what you think is important about him in the context of this story? Sure. Let's first start with a bit of New Jersey bonding. I was born in Middletown, New Jersey at the uh, Long Branch Community Hospital. Just Excellent. For the- <laughs> I, I was born in the Bronx, but raised in Cloister, New Jersey, which no one's ever heard of, but um, <laughs> solidarity. Get there we go. <laughs> so Charles Abbott was actually trained as a physician, but by all accounts, including his own, he had a terrible bedside manner. He was just a cranky fellow. And so he decided that, you know, he wasn't going to make a living as a physician. And in fact, he couldn't. So he decided really what his calling was in life was to be a naturalist. And and Abbott's notion of being a naturalist was really not tied to any of the particular scientific currents that were flowing at the time. Mind you, this is post-Charles Darwin, Origin of the Species, evolution and ecology are really taking off. But those those escaped Charles Abbott's attention. Abbott's notion of doing um, natural history really just involved wandering around his neighborhood. And in the course of wandering around his neighborhood, he would observe birds, he would observe fish, um, and he would just tell stories about them, none of which were, well, terribly scientific is really what it comes down to. Uh, he would tell stories about you know the minds of fish as though he could actually read them. But in the course of his wandering, he started to um, see artifacts, and he would collect them. Abbott, again, not a terribly sophisticated thinker, but some of the artifacts that he was picking up kind of looked primitive. The term that he used was rude. And as he started to look into what those might be, he was aware of what was going on in Europe. He knew that in Europe, uh, Ice Age, Pleistocene um, artifacts looked rude and primitive. And so the things that he was picking up in New Jersey kind of looked the same. And so, therefore, he made the interpretive leap, well, if they look the same, then they're probably the same age. And thus, the American Paleolithic was born, and unfortunately, it was born on no more solid a foundation than Abbott seeing lookalikes between what he was picking up and what they had picked up in Europe, that in Europe was demonstrably Ice Age in antiquity. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's going to come up um, at the very end of the book, when we get to the 10th chapter, and we're not there yet, um, but the, the book is going to make the point that visual evidence and visuality becomes really, really important throughout this story. And so it's interesting to hear, um, hopefully for listeners, that that um, importance of visuality as a form of evidence, uh, you know, to, positively or negatively, is actually there from the beginning of the story. Yeah, I mean, this was a time when object lesson literally meant objects uh, and that stuff was important and the way stuff looked was itself a hint as to what it was and why it was. <laughs> so how do we get from these Trenton Paleoliths and the kind of discussions surrounding these to what happens next, right? Uh, next, we move to 1882 to 1889 and we move from Charles Abbott and his Trenton Paleoliths to George Frederick White, right? 
Right, yeah. Um, now, how do we get from the Trenton Paleolith controversy to what's happening around George Frederick White and his interest in an involvement with glacial geography, glacial geology, rather? Right. So, complicating the situation in America and unlike the situation in Europe, stone artifacts were still being made by Native American people who were still very much around. And so there was a, a residue of concern, um, maybe a little bit of doubt, as to whether Abbott could be correct. Just because these things look old or look rude or look primitive doesn't necessarily mean that they are old, simply because you could go out west and Native American peoples are still making stone tools. And how do you differentiate those? So the answer was geology. And... Abbott was able to attract the interest of Frederick Ward Putnam of Harvard University, who came down, looked at the uh, deposits in which Abbott was uh, apparently collecting these uh, alleged ancient tools and said, well, you know, we need some geologists in here. And George Frederick Wright, who was a self-trained glacial geologist, got very interested in this issue. Wright's a complex fellow. He um, was trained as a minister. Uh, he was a student at Oberlin, uh, went off to the Andover Theological Seminary, and on um, what they term Blue Mondays, I guess after you're, uh, uh, you do your ministrations on Sunday, uh, you have Monday off, and his Monday off would involve walking around and basically observing things and became a self-taught glacial geologist. But he was a glacial geologist with an agenda. He was perfectly happy having uh, ancient human remains in the Americas as long as they weren't too ancient. Mm -hmm. And so Wright became a, a strong advocate of the relative recency of the end of the Pleistocene and a strong advocate that there had only been a single glacial advance. That is to say, we knew that at one time in the past, ice had covered large portions of the northern hemisphere in both America and Europe. And the original idea was it got cold, it got icy, there were large glaciers, and then they retreated. That was the idea starting in the 18, late 1830s into the 1840s, and Wright stuck with that idea. And what will happen ultimately is that Wright, because he was so darn stubborn, and he was stubborn because he had that agenda, anytime you found artifacts associated with uh, an Ice Age deposit, it had to be that single Ice Age deposit, which, according to Wright, uh, was no more than 10,000 years old. And that will ultimately, by putting himself in that box, um, he would ultimately get hammered from all sides because the glacial record proved to be a whole lot more, controversy, a whole lot more complex uh, and led to great controversy. You do realize that you just perhaps unintentionally made a geology pun by saying he got hammered. And I just want to mark that because it's clever. Um, so George, I'll take credit for it. Yeah, no, I'm just going to give you credit for that. So George Frederick Wright, not White, I, like I had visuality on the brain. George Frederick Wright gets into a controversy, um, and it's a really interesting controversy with someone named Thomas C. Chamberlain. And ultimately, this controversy hinges on, among other things, a question about what proper scientific method was. So since this is something that's going to be of interest right, to people interested in science studies. Can you talk a little bit about the argument between Wright and Chamberlain and really what you think is most important for us to take away from that? 
Wright and Chamberlain, it's interesting, both had very similar backgrounds. Um, Chamberlain was the son of a circuit-riding abolitionist minister uh, raised in an Orthodox household. Like Wright, early on, he sought to reconcile geology and theology. But Chamberlain went a different direction as he became uh, an adult. Uh, he ultimately rose to chief of the Glacial Geology Division of the USGS. At one point, he was uh, president of the um, University of Michigan. Uh, he taught at Wisconsin. Most of his career was spent at the University of Chicago. Chamberlain had a very strict scientific code, and it was almost, in a sense, a religious philosophy in which science was the key to understanding the universe. And it was, you know, sort of a, um, a secular theology was a term um, that one historian used in describing Chamberlain. But to, to understand scientific truths, you have to completely devote yourself to the empirical record, right? He was not going to let his mind get um, sidetracked by any kind of agenda. Um, he did not believe that um, anything but the empirical record was true. Uh, he did not believe that everybody was entitled to speak about what was true and what wasn't in the empirical record unless they had completely mastered all of its intricacies and, uh, and had extraordinarily high standards. I mean, Chamberlain Chamberlain was an elitist, um, and he was absolutely um, autocratic. He was self-righteous. He had no sense of humor whatsoever, and he had extremely high standards. And if you disagreed with Chamberlain, you better have the data on your side, because if you didn't, uh, he would destroy you. <laughs> Wright did not. And Wright and Chamberlain, and one of the themes that's sort of running through uh, these, these several chapters, is the battle between the two of them, because fundamentally Chamberlain felt that Wright was being dishonest and disloyal to the scientific code. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you for that. Now, as we move from that into the next phase of this controversy, the Great Paleolithic War, so, so to kind of shout out to the actual title of the book, from 1890 to 1897, we move into the kind of culmination of this growing dispute over the American Paleolithic. Now, by now, and it's going to be probably clear to listeners, this had become a geological issue. And you make this point here in this point, part of the book. And in part, it involved the question of whether the Paleolithic which were under um, uh, scrutiny, right, were found in situ. But resolving it was really difficult because there were no accepted protocols, as you say here in the book and in the words of the book, for recognizing stratigraphic units and depositional contexts. So um, this is a really um, uh, difficult um, and sort of complex uh, area of argument here. Now, into this controversy strides someone who's really, really interesting, so let's meet him also, and this is William H. Holmes. Now, William H. Holmes becomes really interesting um, for lots and lots of reasons, but in part because he's got an approach toward material culture that's really interesting here. He situates the artifact in terms of its form within a dynamic context, as you put it here in the book, of its manufacture and its use. He brings a kind of ethnographic approach, um, in other words, um, related to this, to understanding the archaeological past. So, David, can you tell us about what you think um, is kind of most interesting and important about Holmes and about his entree into this controversy and his contributions to it? 
So William Henry Holmes actually began as an artist, and he um, he was raised on a farm in Ohio, went to Washington, was literally discovered whilst uh, sitting at the Smithsonian sketching birds. Somebody walked in and said, you're pretty good at that. Um, we've got expeditions going out west. Do you want to come along as an artist? And Holmes is actually in, in many quarters best known for these absolutely spectacular panoramas that he drew of the Grand Canyon. If you look at a Holmes panorama, um, you can literally do geology looking at it um, because he was so accurate. Uh, it was like a camera uh, through his eyes. So he had this visual skill and this visual sense. By virtue of having been out west uh, with the Hayden expedition in the 1870s, um, he was uh, brought back to uh, – to Washington, uh, was hired on at the uh, USGS and ultimately uh, the United States Geological Survey and then the Bureau of Ethnology to illustrate material. In the course of illustrating material and having had the experience of um, encountering Native American peoples and watching them make stone tools, he understood, as, say, Charles Abbott did not, that an artifact was not somehow instantly created, um, that it just appeared that way, and that it was not in any sense part of a dynamic process by which you take a stone, just some round rock, for example, and turn it into something else. And what Holmes realized was that that process of going from a round rock into, say, a projectile point, um, an arrowhead, as they would say in those days, um, an artifact goes through a whole series of stages. In the process of going through those stages, things break, things get discarded in the manufacturing process. And by virtue of the fact that by going through that process, you're actually in some ways mimicking the whole evolution of stone tool making. If you toss something out in process, it could end up looking rude. There was This was the, the 1870s, 1880s. And the whole notion of um, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, right? The old Haeckelian uh, lesson that um, in the course of embryonic development, you know, we sort of go through all those earlier stages that human evolution had gone through. When, yes, we were once fish. We had gills, blah, blah, blah. Well, Holmes basically applied that to stone tools. Mm -hmm. So when you're making a stone tool, you're replicating the evolution of stone tool making. So his response to Charles Abbott's paleolith was, well, the reason these look primitive is not because they're old, they're unfinished. They're mimicking ancient stone tools. Cool. If, if that makes sense. It totally does. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the story does not stop there, though. There's a spark that ignites this great Paleolithic War. And the spark that ignites this war is the publication in 1892 of a work by... Um, Right, who we've oh. been just talking about, right? And he's the one who gets into the argument with Chamberlain. He's the one who's interested in um, glacial geology, um, as we talked about shortly before. And he publishes Man and the Glacial Period. Okay, so what was the big deal? Why did this become so controversial? And like, why did this ignite a war? Can you talk? Can you talk us through this particular work and its significance? This is all laid on Chamberlain mm -hmm. in 1889. Wright had published uh, a similar book, and Chamberlain had warned him then, you know what? You don't understand this stuff. You've got no business writing to the, a book for the public 
in which you purport to be an expert in things that you are not expert in. And then there's the subtext, which is I, Thomas Chamberlain, am expert in these things. So if anybody's going to write a book, it should be me. I'm going to write that book. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So he warned Wright privately in 1889, and Wright just completely disregarded him. 1892, Wright publishes another book. It's basically the same book. Um, And he paid absolutely no attention to any of the developments in glacial geology, developments that Thomas Chamberlain was at the forefront of, because by... 1892, it was apparent that Wright's vision of the glacial period as a single uh, ice advance and then retreat was completely wrong. Mm-hmm. By the uh, 1892, it was apparent that there were two, possibly three different glacial episodes. And so simply saying, well, if you've got these alleged Paleolithic artifacts, they must be 10,000 years old because they're associated with a single glacial episode. You couldn't say stuff like that. <laughs> and Wright did. And he did so in a way that was intended to write for the public as opposed to, you know, his scientific colleagues who could criticize him. And Chamberlain basically uh, let loose the dogs, as it were. Um, Chamberlain and his colleagues at the USGS and at the University of Chicago, William Henry Holmes, um, destroyed, destroyed man in the glacial period. It was reviewed uh, a dozen times, and many individuals wrote the same review, um, did it anonymously, uh, published it in in multiple um, journals, uh, all intended to show that Wright was a charlatan. And in fact, that was the word that was used, among others, uh, in describing uh, Wright. And so um, defenders of Wright, and there were a number of them, but it's interesting to note that they were defending Wright's Right, if I can use two rights in a row. You can use two rights. Two rights do not make a wrong. (laughs) Good. Excellent. Uh, Defenders of right defended his right to right. Oh, boy. This is way too many rights. Three three rights definitely make a wrong. (laughs) They defended his his right uh, to publish a book. They didn't necessarily defend the content of the book. It was very interesting to watch them because they felt, and and underlying all of this, there's a much larger social context and cultural context here in the sense that the USGS, represented by Chamberlain, government agencies, federal agencies represented by William Henry Holmes, had money, they had power, uh, they had prestige. And so people like George Frederick Wright or Charles Abbott, who are out in the kind of hinterlands, um, they felt crushed. They felt that, okay, this 800-pound gorilla is stomping on us. That's inappropriate. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so Wright's defenders said, you know what? There's a role in science for amateurs. There's a role in science for people who can contribute in other ways, you know, Knowledge does not begin and end with the United States Geological Survey, the University of Chicago, and Thomas Chamberlain. (laughs) It's a debate that actually reaches into the halls of Congress because in 1893, panic of 1893 is on the horizon, um, the dispute, which basically looks like uh, the USGS trying to stomp on all these local scientific societies, um, there's bloodletting of the USGS budget by virtue of this, because a lot of people were writing to their congressmen saying, you know, who the hell are these people trying to uh, impose their will on American science? Mm-hmm. And one of the really um, cool kinds of sources that comes out of this 
um, constellation of things that's happening um, is a, a set of poems, actually. So Abbott among uh, Abbott <laughs> is writing at least um, one poem, right? The listeners can find on page 165. It's fabulous. Um, against Holmes. And so there's this interesting critical poetry that comes out of this that I particularly like. Okay. So we've, we've come to 1897, and we're moving on now to 1899 to 1914. Now, we move here into three chapters that look closely at successive searches for other evidence of a deep human antiquity. So we're going to move beyond the Paleoliths here into Glacial Age Lois, into um, human skeletal remains, and into other artifacts found in association with extinct Pleistocene fauna. So let's start with Chapter 6, which looks particularly at Glacial Age Lois, and um, introduces a figure who's going to be crucial for the rest of the story. And luckily, David has told me how to pronounce his name, and I'm going to do that right now. This is, wait for it, Ailish Herdlishka. Right. Excellent. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so Ailish Herdlichka, I'm just going to say that a lot. Um, he is introduced here. In 1899, he's asked to examine newly found bones in Trenton. The Trenton femur gets talked about in this context. And he also publishes a book called Skeletal Remains Suggesting or Attributed to Early Man in North America. Okay. So in this part of the story, can you talk about the importance of Ailish Herdlichka what is he doing? What's so important about his role? And can you kind of use that to, to tie in what you think is happening in this part of the story, in this uh, sort of chapter area that we really need to understand in order to move forward? Okay, let me start with what pivots the uh, nature of the empirical record. In 1897, remember that a lot of this was based on these paleoliths must be old because they look like European paleoliths. In 1897, there's a meeting. A bunch of eminent uh, European archaeologists come over to the United States. They are presented with a box of alleged American paleoliths. They look in the box and they say, these aren't paleoliths at all. What are you guys talking about? It absolutely devastates the paleolithic crowd and the notion that paleoliths by themselves are going to tell you about antiquity. Fast forward two years. 1899. Uh, a human femur is found in what appear to be Pleistocene deposits. It's turned over to Ailish Herdlichka, who as a budding young anatomist who will become uh, what we now recognize today as a physical anthropologist. Herdlichka looks at the bones and he says, mm, I don't think they're very old. He doesn't make that argument based on the geology. He makes that argument based on the form of the bone. And what will happen over the next literally um, four decades is that Herlichka will become the principal uh, critic and um, obstacle to efforts to demonstrate a deep human antiquity based on skeletal remains. And the way Herlichka will do it is he will argue that your claims for an ancient skull which you are making based on the fact that it kind of looks like a Neanderthal, that was part of the argument, uh, are wrong. And the reason is that they're wrong is that these uh, crania fit well within the realm of variation of modern Native American skeletal remains. So in other words, um, if, if they don't look any different than Native Americans and they don't look like Neanderthals, then they can't possibly be Pleistocene or Ice Age in antiquity. Mm -hmm. 
Excellent. And the chapter talks about some controversial finds um, that kind of uh, constellate around this. And so the chapter talks about uh, Lansing Man, right, the possibility of Cro-Magnons in Kansas. There's also um, another, which seems to be a pivotal find in the next chapter, that also uh, deals with the possibility of anatomically modern human skeletal remains, right, uh, purportedly here in uh, found with extinct Pleistocene fauna. And this is a site called Vero. Can you talk a little bit about Vero? Yeah, so what happens What happens after Herlichka goes after the Lansing find uh, and the Longs Hill find in Nebraska is that he shows that simply claiming that the skulls look old isn't going to cut it. Mm-hmm. So an underlying theme, let me just back up for a second, an underlying theme through the whole book is that what we have is kind of a shape-shifting affair over time. Uh, proponents of a deep antiquity will start with, oh, it's a paleolith, it looks old, it looks like a European stone tool, it must be old. That doesn't work. So then they go to, it's a skull, it looks like a Neanderthal, it must be old, that doesn't work. Then when you get to Vero, they've shifted again. This time, it's a modern-looking skull. Okay, we'll grant you that, but it's associated with what we know to be extinct animals. So we're not basing this on the morphology of the skull anymore. We're basing this on the fact that it's associated with something that we know is old, which is to say a mammoth, a ground sloth, other kinds of now extinct Ice Age animals. Mm-hmm. And so what happens at Vero is that you know the debate becomes more about how strong is this association? And this is the part where sort of a lot of this discussion, and you mentioned this a few moments ago, is really about sort of understanding how to read evidence in the ground. Mm-hmm. I'm an archaeologist. I've been doing this for a very, very long time. And I know what it's like to be at the bottom of a trench and it's 110 and there's flies buzzing around you and you're looking at the trench walls and you're trying to figure out what are the, what's the depositional sequence here? Is this artifact on the same surface as that artifact? Are they the same age? These can be fairly complicated issues, right? And so what was happening at Vero was, okay, Uh, We're now trying to resolve not something that might be inherent in the object itself in terms of telling us age. We're trying to decide if this thing is clearly associated with that other thing. Um, And what happened was there were site visits. Everybody came down and everybody had a different idea Uh, because there were no nice, clean answers at a site like Vero. Uh, There really was no clear stratigraphic um, or depositional history that people could see and agree upon. Everybody had different opinions of the age of the deposits. And Herdlitschka just said, that doesn't matter. Whatever you people think, you people meaning you geologists think, doesn't matter because the bones don't look old to me. Mm -hmm. And that was that, so far as he was concerned. Herdlitschka was very stubborn. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like it. Yes, but had a cool name. Yes, he did. That's enough for me. Now, what was happening at Vero in this chapter wasn't, um, it, it went beyond, it seems. This is confusing. We're not really sure. Holmes actually claims that the evidence recorded at Vero was literally, quote, dangerous to the cause of science. What's going on there? This is a dispute that most disputes that uh, historians of science um, write about tend to be intradisciplinary, wherein uh, geologists are arguing about a particular issue. This is pitting 
anthropologists, against archaeologists, against linguists, against geologists, against vertebrate paleontologists, and it's never clear exactly, you know, whose side, who's on what side, and and when. Um, Holmes was getting well at this point. He's probably in his seventies, getting more and more irritated at geologists telling him about archaeological history in the Americas, and he literally explodes uh, in this. And it's it's not one of the highlights of the history of American archaeology, I can tell you, <laughs> to try and say, you know, this is completely illegitimate uh, inquiry. Uh, but that's how Holmes felt about it. He felt that the people who were making these claims for a deep human antiquity uh, were intellectually dishonest, and uh, in, that would be the worst-case scenario, or just plain uh, wrong and ill-informed and naive. Uh, would be the the best view he would put on it. Now, this actually brings us to what um, in many ways began this conversation, which is the Folsom site. Okay, so as we move from Chapter 7 to Chapter 8, we move literally, in terms of the title of the chapter, into the belly of the beast, um, 1921 to 1928. What do we need to understand about what's happening at the Folsom site to understand the significance of what's happening in this part of the story? So over the previous four or five decades, um, what we've seen is basically natural selection uh, within a scientific community uh, and within a scientific problem. Ideas are being tried out. They're being rejected. By the time we get to Folsom, we finally have a better idea, not just of stone artifacts, uh, but also of means of telling time and a means of determining the age of archaeological sites. So all of that bitterness, all of that controversy, all of that toing and froing actually had a positive outcome, not necessarily for the people that got hammered along the way, um, but the net result was conceptual gaps had been closed. Gaps in our understanding of uh, how to deal with archaeological sites had been closed. So by the time Folsom rolls around, and it's excavated starting in 1926, people had a better sense of um, the relative antiquity of um, skeletal remains, vertebrate skeletal remains, in this case, bison. What happens in 1927, uh, actually, what happens in 1926, is that the Colorado Museum of Natural History is excavating what they thought was simply a paleontological find, some dead bison. And they knew, they recognized that this particular dead bison uh, skeleton was of a species they'd never seen before. And it was not the modern bison. They knew it was an extinct species. And they were excavating it simply for the purpose of uh, removing the skeleton from the ground, reassembling it, putting it on display at the museum. And then a spear point popped out. And it popped out before they could actually see it and how it might have been associated with the remains. They realized, they being Harold Cook and Jesse Figgins, realized that that projectile point may actually have been shot into that now extinct animal. <laughs> Figgins visits the Smithsonian in the spring of 1927. He meets Herdlichka. He meets William Henry Holmes. Herdlichka is very polite to him. He's very nice to him. And he gives Figgins a piece of advice. He says, look. If you're going back out to the site to excavate in 1927, this coming summer, what I would recommend is if you find an artifact and you find it in place, leave it there. Don't touch it. Don't pull it out of the ground and send out telegrams. Bring in independent observers to look for themselves as to whether that artifact is definitely associated with that now extinct species of bison. 
Figgins thought that was very good advice. What he didn't appreciate was Herlitschka's motives for giving that advice. Herlitschka's motives was simply, I don't trust you. I don't believe you. Whatever you say about that site, I'm not going to take for granted. I want somebody else's independent eyes to look at it. 1927, uh, late summer, the crew that's working the site, the crew, uh, it's basically two guys, uh, excavating, and they uncover the tip of a projectile point, a spear point, close to two ribs of an extinct bison. They stop what they're doing immediately. Word is sent back to Figgins in Denver. He sends out telegrams. We've got a, a the telegram read something like, we have another arrowhead in place at Folsom. Come look. Herlitschka couldn't come look, but uh, Frank Roberts, a young uh, archaeologist that had recently been hired at the Smithsonian, was nearby. He came to look. But more importantly, he called Alfred Kidder, A.V. Kidder. Kidder, in 1927, was a god in American archaeology. He was extraordinarily well-respected. He was an extremely extremely influential and important uh, figure. He comes to Folsom. By now, they've uncovered the spear point. It's clearly associated with this extinct bison. And he says, okay, that's it. That bison is Ice Age, according to the paleontologists. That projectile point is definitely associated with it. Humans were here in the Pleistocene. Drop the mic. Right? No, I, I'm not telling you to do that. I'm, I'm saying, <laughs> like, Thank you. yeah, as as the young people say, right? As, as the, the young kids people say, say these days, <laughs> the mic moment. Yeah. No, that was it. I mean, he. It's astonishing. Two weeks later, he's he's out in California and he gives a talk and he says, "We now know that people have been in the Americas for twelve thousand years." It's like, what happened? <laughs> you know, it just and. Here's the key. Here's the key. When Kidder says that, Herdlichka and Holmes, who'd been criticizing and attacking and resisting every previous claim dating back to 1890, said nothing at all. They weren't going to go against Kidder. They knew they just lost the war. They'd won all the battles up to that point, but game over. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That's such a good story, too. And I'll say that's one of the things that I really love about the book is that it's just there's a lot of really good storytelling in here. So I just want to mark that for listeners. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Okay. So as we move from the belly of the beast forward, um, we fast forward with chapter nine to 1930 to 1941. Now, this is looking at what's happening in the wake of the resolution of this controversy at Folsom that you've just talked about, the dropping of the mic by Kidder, um, all of this stuff that's happening. Now, in the years after Folsom, there's a growing interest in understanding who these kinds of people um, who you know, lived in the Pleistocene may have been. Um, so an idea of paleo-Indians gets developed, um, and you talk about the importance here of the Clovis site, um, specifically on the high plains of New Mexico, in terms of this question of how to understand who these people might have been and, and what it might mean to get evidence to, to understand that, right? So let's talk about that a little bit. Can you lead us into, as we kind of move toward the end of the book and toward um, something that'll look like a conclusion of our conversation, what's happening in the wake of Folsom in terms of understanding um, what what are called these paleo-Indians and what does Clovis have to do with this? 
Right. So, um, by the way, it's showing internet connection problem. Are you hearing me okay? I'm totally hearing you okay. Okay, good. So, here's the thing. You couldn't ask any other questions about who these people were, how they got here, what they did when they arrived, until you'd answered the when question. Folsom answered the when question. They were here at the end of the Pleistocene. And what happens in the wake of that is everybody starts to ask the really interesting questions, which is, how did they get here? Where did they come from? Who were these people? And can we push antiquity back any further? And that's where Clovis comes in, because Folsom uh, was associated with bison. And because, as I mentioned at the outset, people learned how to find sites by looking for big animal bones, other sites started to pop up which didn't have just bison bones, they had mammoth bones. And Clovis, which is located just outside of Clovis, New Mexico, not very far from Folsom in the grand scheme of things, produced um, many, many mammoth bones with a, a different kind of spear point, larger, heavier, more robust. And it pretty quickly became clear that Clovis was, in fact, older than Folsom. And so suddenly we started to develop not just a, a single data point at the end of the Ice Age. We're starting to get a sequence, and we're starting to understand what these folks are doing at the end of the Ice Age under very different climatic conditions, very different environmental uh, settings. And that, in turn, is leading to questions like, well, if people are around on the landscape when mammoths are still roaming around and mammoths go extinct, were mammoths were people responsible for the extinction of those mammoths. And that becomes a question uh, in, in the 1930s. What happens in the 1930s, and by decades end, a whole series of sites are discovered, an image comes together, that basic image of Paleo-Indians as big game hunters. And by the end of the 1930s, we have a whole series of synthetic papers and books being written about humans in the Pleistocene. So literally, we go from 1927 Fast forward a dozen years, and we now have an established understanding, an established understanding of Paleo-Indians that will, in fact, carry over to when I, as a 15-year-old kid, started doing archaeology. Now, mind you, we actually think a lot of different things these days. <laughs> things have, have changed again in turn uh, over the years, but the basic understanding uh, was established in that decade or so right after Folsom. And, and because of that and Clovis and some of those other sites. Which brings us to that dark and stormy afternoon when you were 15. And it's now a dark and stormy afternoon here, too, in Vancouver. So we've become full circle. <laughs> now, now, there's also, um, as we're coming full circle and we're coming to our conclusion, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention for listeners, there's a 10th chapter of this book that's extraordinarily rich. It's really important. And what it does is it takes moments from and it sort of synthesizes this this rich history this rich accounting this deep accounting of this history that we've gotten in narrative form for the previous nine chapters and it takes a thematic look at some of the most um uh, interesting kind of themes and questions of broad relevance that come out of this really richly textured story so it steps back from the narrative to analyze um, a series of questions. And here, this is in the words of the book. Um, it analyzes how and why the controversy developed, why it defied resolution for so long, why it ended as quickly and decisively as it did when it did, and what that meant for American archaeology. Now, there's a lot going on here. And um, we've talked a little bit about the um, the fact of 
uh, the visuality of the arguments for and against the American Paleolithic. We've talked about um, the importance of morphology. Um, you've talked about Holmes being a kind of reader of objects. You say here that he made silent objects speak, which I really like. Um, this chapter talks about the flattening of time, the flattening of the past, the relationship between the different kinds of disciplines that are involved, um, understanding the place of Native Americans in this story. Um, it talks about what's uh, how to understand this story within a larger history of the specialization of scientific disciplines and the sharpening of a separation between professional and amateur. So that's just to give listeners um, a brief sense of some of the richness of the kinds of larger historiographical questions that come up in Chapter 10. Now, David, we won't have time to really talk too substantively about this chapter, but is there anything in particular um, that happens here in Chapter 10 that you'd like to flag or um, particularly mark for listeners as they embark on their own reading of this chapter? I guess the um, the thing that was foremost on my mind as I was trying to understand what was going on through this, this long narrative was, yes, there were factual gaps that had to be closed. Yes, there were conceptual gaps that had to be closed. But the resolution which required both. Those were those were necessary conditions, but those weren't necessarily sufficient conditions to bring this thing to resolution. And what I talk about a fair amount in that last chapter is the role of elites in resolving scientific controversy. Science is fundamentally a democratic enterprise in the sense that anybody can join, but it's not democratic in the sense that everybody's entitled to um, – I mean, everybody's entitled to an opinion, but not everybody's entitled to resolve a controversy. Uh, and that really became clear, both in the behavior of Holmes and Herlitschka, who are among the scientific elite, in basically going after all of these fines. I mean, had this been simply a matter of consensus, they would have been outvoted. Um, but they had the power. They had the status. They were the ones that had to be convinced. Uh, and the flip side, Kidder can walk in. I mean, Kidder was not necessarily interested in ancient stuff. He had his own reasons for being interested, but it wasn't because this was inherently important to him uh, that he could learn something about Paleo-Indians. But the key thing is, is that he understood that time mattered, that having deep time mattered. And when he came in, looked at that site, looked at Folsom, realized that this meant that the controversy was over, it was over drop the mic, as it were. Um, and so there's a fair amount of discussion in Chapter 10 about who the elite were, why it mattered, uh, how people responded to them, what they did. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't always pretty. I mean, this is a time when when American science broadly is sorting out who's an amateur, who's a professional, and then within Who's a professional and who's among the elite within the profession? And all of this sorting is taking place over these uh, these decades of controversy. And so ultimately, it's that it's that process, in addition to closing the factual gaps and the conceptual gaps that will bring about uh, the resolution at Folsom. Awesome. So, David, thank you so much um, for spending this time talking about the book. There are a million, billion, trillion things that we didn't talk about. Like the book is an extraordinarily rich history in all kinds of ways. But given that, is there anything in particular that didn't come up or that we didn't have time to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had the chance to become readers? In terms of the book, um, 
Not necessarily. Let me actually, though, give you a bit of background. I've been involved in my day job as an archaeologist. I've been involved in a lot of controversies myself. And in some ways, the controversies are the same as the ones that folks were grappling with back in the 1880s, 1890s, 19-teens, and 20s. How, how early did people get to the New World? What was their role in terms of the extinction of these Ice Age animals? And so I came to this both because of its inherent interest to me to understand this history, but also because um, it's a whole lot easier to write about a controversy when you're not in the middle of it. Uh, and so this was, this was a project that um, it was good for me in the sense that um, I learned a lot about the ones that swirl around me now. Uh, the controversies that swirl around me now. And it was fun to write about this from the safe haven of 100 years later uh, to sort of understand how is scientific knowledge created? And that's really what this book is all about, is how do we go from basically no understanding of anything, let alone whether the phenomena that we seek to find even exists that is to say, at the beginning of this controversy, it wasn't even clear that there was a human presence in the Ice Age. So how do we go from that to now, uh, you know, 50 years later, 1927, uh, it only takes Kidder an afternoon of looking at an artifact in the ground to say, OK, it's over. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what this book is, is really all about, is how do we craft scientific knowledge? Clearly, the answer is that you write poems criticizing the people who agree with you, right? I mean, that's the least part of the take-home. But so now that the book is out, David, and it's such a great book, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about it. What what in particular are you working on now? Sort of when you are, you know, what's next for you? What's taking up your time now? Well, uh, I have to say that this book, um, because I was busy doing archaeology all these years, regrettably had to be done kind of at at fits and starts over probably a couple of decades. And now that it's out, um, I'm not quite sure where to take the history next. You know, this was, this was an itch I had to scratch. Um, I spent uh, a long time on it. Um, And at the moment, I'm deep into ancient DNA work. Uh, we're actually learning a whole lot about who these folks are and where they came from based on sequencing DNA from uh, remains. Um, I'm busy doing archaeology. Uh, I actually excavated for three years at the Folsom site because I was just so darn interested in it. Um, and we did a book on uh, the Folsom site, what we know that we didn't know in the 1920s. So I'm doing a lot of archaeological uh, work, and I'm sort of taking a break from the history of science, partly because I'm hoping that uh, my colleagues in the history of science, um, I'm, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting to see what the response is to find out if I get drummed out of the club or not. Oh, no, we'll drag you back in. Okay. <laughs> yes. Oh, there's no escape. Once, you know, it's like the Hotel California. Oh. You, you can leave now. Um, so... <laughs> But okay, well, so, but in the meantime, um, thank you so much for taking time out of that work to talk with me today. It's really been a pleasure and it's such a great book. And just thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate having the chance to talk to you, Carla. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll catch you next time.